This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, S.E. Flinor. I'm super happy to be here today. This is the first time we are recording in 2023. Not the first episode y'all are hearing. So think about it kind of like it's time travel, uh, which might come up again during the interview. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm just, you know, I'm really about the full circle interview these days. So Yeah. Uh, absolutely delighted to be here with another host, my buddy. Sarah Century. Hey, everybody. <laughs> it's I feel like I have been in um, a by myself. Yeah, I was going to try to make up like a really cool metaphor. And then I was like, nope, you've just been in a room by yourself. And that's what it feels like. So <laughs> no metaphor needed for that one. Um, don't have to be poetic even in the slightest right now. However, I am extremely excited to be speaking to people. It's really fun to do that. And so I would like to say, hey, Essie, it's good to hear your voice. And also, I'm very excited to introduce our guest for today, which is Cecil Castellucci. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I would I would love to hear just a little bit about you because first of all you have a resume that is completely outrageous and we're going to try to get into as much of it as we can in the time that we have today but you've been writing for a very long time it seems like because or you're just like the most prolific writer <laughs> of them all. So um yeah, tell everybody just a little bit about yourself and you know, I guess maybe just what what you've been working on lately. Um, well, hello. My name is Cecil Castellucci. Um, I like telling stories, um, all sorts. Um, I started off my career actually, um, uh, being in an indie rock band. Um, and so that was the first way that I told stories. Um, my band was called Nerdy Girl, uh, and my punk name was Cecil Seaskull. Um, and I felt <laughs> like those were short little stories that I was telling about my angst, uh, at the time. And then, um, and then I had always loved children's literature, so uh, I always wanted to write some. And uh, so then I started writing young adult novels, um, and that was sort of my first foray into uh, writing books. Um, and then I uh, happily got into comics. Um, I had been trying to figure out how to get into comics for a long time. My first book was The Plain Janes, which was originally out on DC Comics um, for their Minx line um, and was re-released recently um, on Little Brown, and that's with artist Jim Rugg. Uh, and then uh, I've been writing opera librettos, um, and so I've been doing that 
with, um, uh, you know, trying to sort of merge comics and opera together uh, with three what? projects that I've done. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, right. I also write short stories and I'd like to become a playwright when I grow up. And um, I basically, I just love telling stories and I'm trying to figure out how to best serve the ideas that I get um, and tell them in the most perfect way that will make them shine. So that's what I do. I'm a story crafter. Yeah, you just kind of blew my mind like five times during that introduction where I was like, ooh, got to ask about that here in a sec. And I'm like, oh, wait, I've got to ask about that, too. I thought that the first thing that I read from you was the Female Fury series, but now I'm looking and I think it must have been Plain Jane's. I, for some reason, it just, you know, I read it a long time ago, so I kind of just like wasn't even thinking, but I think that that might be the first one. And uh, yeah, I also used to play music and kind of did the same thing where I was like, I don't know, playing music. Yeah, basically just I believe that The Plain Janes was maybe the first book that I read from you. So uh, do you want to chat about that a little bit? How did that come into being? Of course I do. I love The Plain Janes. And actually, that's before we were recording when you were talking about, I want to talk about this out. I was like, oh, I bet you they would like The Plain Janes. So I'm glad that that you read it. Yeah. So I had written my first novel, which was a novel called Boy Proof. It was a young adult novel. And, um, uh, it it was about a girl. It's about a girl who is obsessed with post-apocalyptic science fiction films and Vertigo comics. And Shelley Bond, who at the time was at Vertigo, uh, comics, um, had read it and was launching this line of, uh, comics, um, uh, called Minx. And, um, and that was, uh, that was, um, how sort of it came, it came into being. And that was, that's a great example of, I had this idea for a story about four girls at a lunch table who all wanted to be a part of a different popular group. And one of the girls thought that they were the coolest group, but I didn't know what kind of a story it was. It didn't feel like a YA novel. I thought maybe it was an animated show, but I didn't know anything about that. And so when Shelley had called and said, would you ever be interested in writing comics? A, I was obsessed with the idea of trying to write comics um, and didn't know how to start. And B, I was like, oh, that's what this idea is. It's a comic book. Um, so that was that. And then I got paired up with the amazing Jim Rugg. Uh, and that was my first comic book. And I've never looked back. Yeah, I was wondering, too, because the what you were mentioning about being in a band and how that's kind of just telling short little stories. Would you elaborate on that just a little bit? Because I have kind of a similar history where I was in a band played by uh, played solo actually a lot. And then would do these songs. Um, And then at a certain point, it was like I could stay in my pajamas (laughs) and just like write this stuff down kind of. so I don't know, it kind of switched, it switched up for me. And I think just getting like a little bit older and stuff like that made me be like, I don't really want to be awake at like two o'clock in the morning, <laughs> which you kind of have to be sometimes if you're playing shows and stuff. But I was, yeah, I just would like to hear a little bit more about that and how uh, the the songs kind of translated into being, you know, all of these other avenues. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I started a band with my friends when I was in film school. So I thought I was going to become a filmmaker. And, um, and then it was just sort of a way to sort of quickly get out a lot of angst and, um, feelings 
that I was having. And it was very immediate, very visceral. That's what I loved about music. Um, and I loved playing with a band, but then I also played just, you know, solo acoustic, um, as well. Um, and I think that's when I started thinking about stories for the first time as being kind of different, like where sometimes I would get an idea and I'd be like, oh, that could be a little film script or, oh, that could, that I could use for school or, oh, that's a punk rock song. Um, and then I started sort of separating, um, you know, uh, how I could express things. Cause when you're writing a song, it's different than when you're writing a little short, whatever film school piece, um, you know, for class, um, they, you know, they sort of hit different emotional, um, notes, emotional tones. Yeah. And I think that that's true probably. And I'm curious if you would agree that whenever you kind of switch to pretty much any different thing, it's like, oh, it's the same, but it is very different at the same time. You have to kind of uh, make it be for like that medium specifically. Yeah. And you, and you learn from it. And um, sometimes what I find really helpful is that I might have a similar feeling that I'm putting into three different kinds of things, but each form is um, telling that story in the best way that it can tell it, which is very different. And so it lands differently. And so it's satisfying to me as an artist because it's, it's sort of showing a different color of that same um, um, story knot that I have in my head. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I've been doing kind of the same and switching genres mm -hmm. and mediums and stuff yeah. like that. And I think when you do that, it's like, this works so well in this medium, but it's because I put like very specific, you know, the borders of that medium on it, yeah. right? And then it's like, if you tried to make it into a film or something like that, it would just have a different tone to it, I guess. Yeah, and that's why sometimes it's frustrating when I, you know, I hear people say like, oh, I have this idea. I originally wrote it as this, but now I want to make it into this. It, it would just be so easy. And it's like, well, it's not that easy, <laughs> um, because they're different. Um, but, uh, but also, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, what, what are the best ways to translate that into this new form? Um, I'm trying to actually do that with Soupy Leaves Home. Um, uh, you know, I just feel like there's something about Soupy Leaves Home that I'm not quite done with. And, uh, so I've, I decided that I want to start trying to, I want to make it into a stage play. Mm. You know, and I got this little, um, fellowship to go to the, um, the, the Banff Playwrights Lab, um, in Banff, Canada. And, um, you know, it was a little grant to go and do that. And I worked with a dramaturg and stuff. And, you know, we sat down and he was like, okay, get ready. We're going to rip everything apart and rebuild it. <laughs> and it was really, you know, it's really, um, it's so different. And it doesn't mean that the heart of the story isn't going to be the same, but it's, it's completely transformed. I mean, I'm not done with it yet, but you know, but that it, it took a lot for me to be able to let go, um, of it, you know, and oftentimes people say, Oh, if somebody optioned something of yours, would you want to write it as a film? And I mean, maybe, but also it's like, I think that sometimes you're too close to a story to be brave enough to do what needs to be done to it, you know? Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and how many frustrating adaptations have we seen of comics where it's like, what's the adaptation part? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, this is a film, this is not a yes. comic book. Like, I yeah. think you need to think about the medium a little bit. Yeah, but yeah, but I, I don't think that that doesn't, it doesn't mean that you can't 
you know, just sort of take something and translate it into something else or just be like, yeah, I'm just going to do this. But I think it is about sort of um, like trying to figure out what is what it, what is the strength of the way that you're mm. trying to tell a story. And I mm. think one of the freedoms that I have that I'm trying to give myself as a writer is to um, think about when I get an idea for a story, okay, what's the best way? How does this story mm. want to be told? What's the best way to tell this story? Mm. You know, that's so cool to hear because as Sarah was saying, I mean, Sarah works in all kinds of mediums and genres. And we're, we work together in a couple of different ones. And we have some narrative audio horror coming out soon. Already started coming out over at Decoded Horror Channel. And then we have our full anthology season, Tales of the Sapphire Bay Hotel, coming. Sarah's brainchild. I'm so proud. Um, and, you know, it is... I, I wrote um, four of the episodes, maybe, and I had to really relearn because I wrote it like a screenplay because I knew how to write screenplays and I knew how to write novels and I knew how to write short fiction, but I did not know how to make an audio play. And so yeah. it was really funny. Sarah did this amazing set of edits, but she would just mention things like, hey, you're the only person who will know this is happening because it's not in the audio form being recorded and communicated to the audience. And so I had to be like, oh my God, you're right. Like I have to think about really using the form the way that it is best suited to tell this story. And I love thinking about it like what form does this story necessitate? Absolutely. And I mean, I definitely, you know, had a big learning curve with that with Nikki Fix, you know. Um, I think that like, you know, um, that was, uh, you know, trying to do an audio play. And, um, and you know, thank goodness, um, Adam and Heather, um, you know, who run Einhorn, like they have experience with that. And, um, and so that was, you know, definitely a learning curve. I had done some recreating old time radio um uh, in in the past, I used to teach old time radio to little kids um, as one of my jobs in my twenties. But um, but writing that is completely different, and you know, time travel stuff really depends on a lot of visual cues, and so that was really that was a real challenge for you know for me and the rest of the writers in the um, in the writers room uh, to kind of figure out because um, you know sometimes we'd be like, oh yeah, we could just show. Oh no, can't show it. <laughs> Gotta like hear it, you know? So, um, you know, so that was, that was a real, that was a real tricky, tricky thing. <laughs> you are singing my song, Cecil. I have this scene. Yeah. Oh my God. I, you know, it's like, I, I, I get bored if I don't do something that's weird. <laughs> so yeah. I yeah. like set up this whole premise and then I was like, and Sarah in the second half, I'm going to break it. And she was like, great, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but then it's like, okay, but it's kind of like real, not real. And so I have to figure out how to communicate. Like, what is that? You're right. That is such an, a much easier thing to communicate visually. And totally. so how do you communicate it with audio? And that was such a fun challenge. Um, but it is, I mean, I imagine with Nikki Fix, it was quite a challenge, but, you know, it, it feels like it really paid off. I would love to hear more about working in a writer's room for Nikki Fix and what that experience of writing collaboratively was like. 
Well, I mean, you know, except for comics and being in a band, which is a totally different kind of collaboration, usually when I'm writing a story, it's by myself. And so I'd never really been in a writer's room before. And um, and so it was so fun to engage with these, you know, just sort of brilliant brains. Just shout out to the writers in the room, um, Blue Beckford, uh, Natalia Janachuk, uh, and Louis, Louis Kornfeld, um, and also Adam Staffroni. Um, it was great because, you know, you had whenever you would come up with a, a question or, um, you know, a problem, a narrative problem, instead of like, you know, going on a long walk and crying, <laughs> like I usually do by myself. <laughs> and it was great to have like a few other people in the room that you could kind of loosen that knot with, you know? Um, so that was, um, that was really great. And it was great to have, um, you know, Adam there who was, you know, kind of guiding what, uh, what they wanted for, you know, for this sort of very 90s time travel, you know, show. Mm. You all really, I love the way that the production goes, because I feel like what you did exactly what you needed to do, which was lean in with a lot of really great sound effects and stuff. And, uh, you know, some, some podcasts are super sparse on them and some podcasts, you know, have a full, like, it's one of those podcasts where you really want to listen to it on your headphones, right? Um, and that's why I was kind of thinking about how cool it was that that ended up working out because it's like with a horror, right? When you're doing like a horror audio play, then, you know, it's in some ways it's easy to deal with the sound effects because you just have to be like, oh, how do I make it spooky? And then it's like, creep. right? <laughs> and you're just like, well, it's spooky. <laughs> we needed exactly one sound effect and that's it. And now it's very scary. And like, you know, some whispering in the background, like, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. An inappropriate like, child laughter. That's a good one. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah we're terrified immediately. But <laughs> I, I loved how, yeah, Nikki Fix was kind of leaning in with these really interesting sound effects that I think made it work really well. So I was curious if that was something that was entirely in post-production or if there was a, a lot of that in the scripting as well. Um, I would say that probably most of it was in post-production, although, you know, we definitely... Um, you know, had to address a lot of the, um, you know, the ideas about music and how music was being played and how the song was being written when we didn't have the song yet. You know what I mean? And sort of like, mm. how do you, how do you sort of get across the idea of creativity and, um, and sort of, uh, you know, somebody sort of noodling around on, on a song. And I think one of the writers, Natalia Janchuk and her husband, Murray Lightburn, they're the ones who wrote the, um, the, you know, the sort of the, the song. And, um, and so I think that that worked, um, really well, but, uh, that's a shout out to the post-production team. I think they had like a real, um, uh, they had a real idea about that. We definitely put things in there like, you know, thinking about, uh, uh, you know, video game things and dial up and, um, Mm-hmm. All those, you know, skate sounds and things like that that we that were just thinking evoke about. the '90s, yeah. where you're just like, I'm back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we did. We definitely, we all, all, all five of us put that into our scripts as sort of cues. But, um, but I think that's what sound designers are really great at is mm-hmm. that they know they know how to they know how to they know how to fill that that space. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh my God. That we I have recently been 
being absolutely saved by a sound engineer. So yes, I agree with you. Like sound engineers being like, oh, since you're talking about birds, I'll put some bird noises in. And I'm like, wasn't in the script. Appreciate you doing that. Oh yeah. It's so cool to like, it's such a, it feels in some ways similar to like what I've heard folks who, who work in the comics medium. So Cecil, you'll have to tell me where I'm wrong. Um, that collaborative feel of where you're like, okay, I've I've nailed this script. It's got everything it needs. And then you hear it back and you're like, damn, I guess it, it needed a little more. It needed that bird. It needed that, oh, there was like a creaking noise that got added to something of mine that was just like, are you kidding me? It couldn't be more perfect for that moment. Um, and, and that collaborative feeling is so... I don't know. It makes me really happy to be alive. It makes me really happy to be human, I guess. like Oh, and cool be an artist, right? Yes. It's like working with other people who know what they're doing. I mean, I think that's A, you know, number one, what the great experience in the writer's room was, was like, you know, sort of passing that baton. But yeah, in comics... For sure. I mean, I write the script and, you know, I always say in the script to the artist that I'm working with, like, you know, just because I've written that this page is five panels, if you think it's seven or if you think it's three, do it, you know? And, um, and it's always such a joy to see how, how, um, that collaboration works and that you come together and tell, tell that story together. And I think that's what's really great about, all the arts, right? Being in a band or making an opera, working with a composer, working, you know, doing comics, working with a, with an artist, doing, uh, an audio play, working, you know, with other people, even if you're not necessarily a hundred percent there in the room when they're doing it, that collaboration is what makes being an artist fucking great in my opinion. Yeah. As, as I was so thrilled just to be speaking to other people, because I feel like there's a lot of the work that gets done just in our heads. Mm -hmm. Right. And then there's moments where you just get to chat it out with everybody. That's kind of the whole podcast. I guess we do this podcast where we just get to be like, so what do you think whenever you make art basically? And it is always like a good conversation to have where you're just like, oh, it's like basically the same as I think. Well, when I write a novel, I feel like, okay, I'm the goddess here and I can make all the choices <laughs> that I want. No problem. Yeah. Um, so it kind of, in a way, I think that's made me really game to play when I go into mediums that are collaborative because I have a space where if I want to just make all the choices, all the bad choices and have them all on me, I can do that. I've got that place. <laughs> I've got that place to do that. Um, but yeah, I think collaboration is amazing. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask really quick about uh, Heather Einhorn, the mm -hmm person who heads up that studio because I believe that I'm about to do an interview with Heather. Mm -hmm, <laughs> so I just wanted to chat a little bit and talk about, you know, the role that the production company played in it, I guess. Well, yeah. So Heather, um, she's amazing. Her and Adam Staffaroni, um, they run Einhorn um, uh, Productions and um, they uh, came to me with this idea and they sort of had a, a, you know, had a vision about a time travel thing in the 90s with music and a skating rink and they had a um they had a story and then they asked whether or not I would be interested in sort of like helping to sort of craft it with a writer's room and um and so that's what that's what we did and um you know just trying to distill what the time travel stuff was going to be, how much we were going to jump forwards and backwards and um where we were going to jump to and all of that kind of stuff um we kind of all came up with in the room and just tried to really honor what um, Adam and Heather had sort of brought to the table. 
Excellent. Uh, Essie, I wanted to ask if you have any more Nikki Fix questions, because I was going to move into my next line of questioning, but I don't want to jump ahead too soon. I think the only other thing I wanted to talk about was how you titled the episodes. And if that was a sort of production side conversation, or if that was a a writer's room or a collaborative, because it's 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 part of what evokes that feeling that you're trying to of that that time travel. So I would bet that that was all Heather um, because she's such a big music dork. And I would, you know, one of the things that you can't really do or is challenging to do, as I'm sure you know, when you're doing an audio drama is getting licensing for songs, right? Uh. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, that's why there's an original song. And, um, and I think that that I would wager is a really clever way of A, making it a mixtape for the listeners um, uh, you know, themselves and also a way of sort of evoking, uh, the songs of that time period, because you hear those songs in your head without, without having to have it in the episode. That's what I would bet. I see. I see. Yes. I also am a nineties music nerd and <laughs> indeed really an all time of music nerd. I was listening to some stuff from the twenties <laughs> the nice. other day and I was like, I don't think it's something that people casually do, but also in everything that was recorded 1923 or before the recordings are now public I domain know, it's so and exciting. that is wild some of them are pretty messed up so yeah. <laughs> be careful delving into that archive yeah. but uh yeah I found some really cool ones actually where I was like what that one's good to go now wow how fun um <laughs> but the 90s are still far far from the public domain <laughs> truth <laughs> Far I from guess. it, if anybody has anything to say f- about it, because I feel like the public domain just keeps getting like longer and longer, right? Um, because that's like a hundred years, it's a hundred years for something to be public domain. I, I mean, if it's like written or something, obviously it's different, but a recording is like a hundred years out, and it's like, what yeah. so much, yeah. But anyway. a lot of stuff will start coming in because there's more and more stuff that's been re- that was recorded, like, yes, you know, yes, next year. 1924 baby like we're doing it I'm gonna get it I just like love listening to all of like the old like jazz classics and stuff so Mm -hmm. it'll be fun for me where I'm just like what that could be in the background of something that's amazing yeah hello listeners I know you love the pod. I know you're about it. You're like, wow, bitches on comics. What a bunch of awesome bitches who tend to talk about comics. But did you know there's a way you can support us? You can join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queerspec, and you'll get access to all of our BOC-related bonus material. That's interviews, special conversations, deep dives on the things we're enjoying at the moment, and access to our bonus material for all of our other projects, including Decoded Horror Channel, which if you're not listening, you need to tune into now, Decoded Horror Channel. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. But as part of Decoded Horror Channel, we're going to have special drink recipes available for you and the whole shebang. It's going to be a good time, and I hope you'll join us at patreon.com slash queerspec. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to ask you about Vertigo because I feel that, you know, the Plain Janes, well, even you were just saying that in your first uh, YA novel, you mentioned Vertigo and then you end up, you know, doing a comic for Vertigo. Then you end up doing, obviously, Shade the Changing Girl. And then, yeah, most recently you're working with Karen Berger on the Dark Horse uh, imprint, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's amazing. (laughs) So, yeah, it feels like Vertigo has just played such a huge role in, you know, kind of your comic book trajectories. Because even I would say, I want to ask more about Female Furies going forward, but I was going to say, too, that even though that isn't a Vertigo book that I'm aware of, it also still kind of has the feel of it, right? So, A hundred percent, yeah. And I I wasn't ever actually on Vertigo. I was always on the Vertigo, like... um, baby imprints that were through Vertigo, you know? So like Minx was a Vertigo imprint on DC Comics and uh, Young Animal was a Vertigo imprint on DC Comics. Right. Um, And, you know, obviously Karen Berger, I met, you know, it's at Dark Horse, you know, but it feels like, you know, it's got the Karen Berger, you know, shine on it, you know? So, um, yeah, I would have loved to have had an actual official Vertigo book, but I do feel like Vertigo played a huge part in my career. And I'm ever grateful to, you know, Shelly and Karen for that. Yeah, I was thinking too, that that there's something very interesting about that, because I feel that, you know, we know all we know, like, preacher, you know, like all of the kind of mainstays of Vertigo that were around, you know, around the beginning of the company. But there's a lot of people who did, you know, this kind of, you know, I did a mini series for Vertigo or something like that. So it's always interesting to me how there are people who very much kind of came of age as like Vertigo creators. And then there's so many other creators that were just in love with Vertigo, right? And did like, you know, either tangential or kind of, you know, mini series or something like that. Yeah. And I, and I definitely feel like I was part of the last class of, you know, Vertigo of Karen Berger and of Shelley, um, you know, in, in that, in that sense. And, um, and, you know, just, uh, really grateful for that, you know, um, Shelley Bond was my editor and stuff, but whenever I would go to New York, I would always like have a coffee as well with Karen and just sort of talk comics and, um, really get to dream uh, with her. So it was a, an amazing experience to be able to do shifting, shifting earth with her. And if you know your Vertigo history, Shade the Changing Man was sort of, um, you know, one of the first original titles that was on the, this brand new imprint, uh, Vertigo, um, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, so getting to reboot that on an imprint of Vertigo was amazing. 
Yeah, I would love to talk a little bit more about Shade the Changing Girl. And honestly, the whole young animal line, I feel like was so good and kind of a brief moment in time, you know, because there was so much going on with Vertigo that it ended up not lasting all that long. But it is all stuff that is just top notch. I think that they brought in so many great creators. And for a hot second, it was just kind of cleaning up. Like every time my pull list would come in, I'd be like, yes, more of this. Yes. But I wanted to talk. Did you have a long history with Shade the Changing Man before you jumped into Shade the Changing Girl? Um, No. Well, first I want to say about Young Animal, just Gerard Way really was the captain of that ship. And he just really you know, brought such joy to that whole group of people. Um, John Rivera, Jody Hauser, you know, Michael Oming, uh, Nick Darrington, like everybody, you know, uh, 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 Marlon Zarconi, my, my, my blood sister in shade. I mean, it was just an incredible, incredible, incredible time. It was really special. Um, yeah. And, um, and, you know, and spearheaded by, you know, um, uh, Jamie Rich, who was the, um, the sort of, um, you know, head, of it at that time and, um, and really sort of steered it. It was just, it was amazing. Um, my, uh, I did not know shade all that well. I mean, I had been, it was on my radar, but it was a little violent for me. Um, if you've ever read the original shade, the changing man, it's, (laughs) it's pretty dark. Um, and so when I got the call from Shelly Bond at the time, um, to, you know, audition, I guess, to try to, um, you know, see if I'd be a good fit for shade. Um, you know, I went and, um, read, read it and I kind of decided that if Peter Milligan was going to mine the landscape of human darkness, um, that I was going to try to, I was going to try to use the geography of the heart for my shade. Um, and so that they could occupy different places, but be sort of complementary to each other. Um, so I went and I read, I read all of Ditko's, uh, Shade, the Changing right. Man, and, um, which is the original because he's the one who created it. Yeah. And, um, and then read all of, uh, um, Milligan's, uh, Shade, the Changing Man. And if you read me and Marley's Shade, the Changing Girl slash woman, um, you can, if you've read those other versions, um, I really did everything that I could to um, incorporate and um, include elements from both of those runs uh, to be able to um, have things that if you really were a big, deep shade, the changing man fan, you would have a lot of stuff to cling on to and be like, oh, I see the threads that she pulled for this. Um, but we also had our own, our own space, um, our own landscape to explore. But anyway... That's what I have to say about Shade the Changing Girl. It was amazing. <laughs> and I worked really hard on trying to um, really make it, make the threads connect to Ditko and Milligan's runs. Mm. And, um, and I mean, I could not, I could not have done it without uh, Marley Zarconi, uh, the artist that I collaborated with on it. She's just absolutely incredible. And, oh, I mean, the um, art is just, it is, it is so, yeah. it's so real and so surreal. Yeah. And it, it, it manages to like balance back and forth as, as the story needs it to. And yeah. just this really fucking pleasing way. I love Shade the Changing Girl. I uh, love it Sarah too. was like, you're going to love this. <laughs> and Sarah was right. Sarah was right. Okay. I want to, I, 
talk to me about gender in Shade the Changing mm-hmm. Girl. Talk to me yeah. about like, you know, she, she I'm not going to use she. Uh, Shade is this yeah. person, uh, alien, other dimensional being. Yep. Bird beak Bird. having. Yeah. Glorious being who inhabits the body of this girl who has uh, just died and becomes sort of like, you know, this, this, this shade, the changing girl. <laughs> who would have thought? And it is so interesting because everyone wants to call her the other girl's, everyone wants to Megan, call Shade yeah. the girl's name. And that's not what's right for Shade. And so Shade is like, no, I'm Shade. Yeah. And it is just this. Oh, I just loved it so much. So I was like, gender, 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 yeah. gender. Talk to me about for you what that was like playing with that. And in this character who presents in this way that I think many people would say, woman, girl, femme, yeah. uh, whether or not that's right or wrong, you know, that I, I just want to hear about that, uh, what that was like. Well, yeah. And also, like, I mean, I think one of my goals, this is a spoiler a little bit, but one of my goals was to, you know, so it starts off Shade the Changing Girl, and then it's Shade the Changing Woman. Um, You know, obviously, it started off as Shade the Changing Man. And then I wanted it to go on as just Shade the Changing, you know, and to just have it be this, you know, this thing, if you remember how it ends, which I don't want to spoil for people who may not have read it. um, But, you know, so that it just sort of... uh, continues to sort of evolve uh that like sort of Loma's uh you know that their adventure just sort of keeps keeps evolving and their exploration of what it is to be human and I think that when you're writing a comic about someone who is exploring and having a desire to figure out what it means to be human um you have to be sort of playing with that idea of gender because what does what does that mean to an alien that's a bird you know, like what, what does that mean? Um, so, um, you know, the other thing that me and Marley talked about a lot too, was that, you know, it, it really is sort of about adolescence and how we feel like we're, our bodies are changing and, um, you know, we don't really know everything is, everything is strange and we feel like aliens in our own bodies and, um, they're changing in ways that we don't necessarily want. I mean, you know, um, you know, maybe your boobs are too big or maybe you're not exactly the, you know, you don't look the way anymore that you feel like you, that you want to look or the way that you think that you are. Um, and that adolescence is sort of that time where it really sort of presents itself. And so, um, so I think that for me, that was a big exploration. I mean, I've always had a a boy's name. Um, and so, and I, I like having a boy's name. Um, and, uh, and I think that that was something that was interesting to me to, you know, to sort of deal with this alien who is sort of moving through, um, this body and trying to figure out how to be in the world. Does that mm. make any sense at all? Yes. Okay. Yes. I was, my brain went in like 35 directions, of course, because that was amazing. Um, I'm, I'm deeply moved by the concept of shade, the changing, like I, like my, my, I felt tears gather in my eyes. You know, I was just like, that is such a, that feels so natural of a progression for Loma, you know? And I I love that idea. I guess it just feels like it's such a delight to see someone playing with gender in the form of a a body. Let's, yeah, a body (laughs) that would be gendered very clearly, I think, by most people. And Mm -hmm. so I, I just found that really, I guess, comforting. I think that 
so often what we see and we see like genderqueer or gender weird or mm-hmm. non-binary or trans or whatever terms, you know, that kind of describe our experiences. Yeah. We, we see them in bodies that, you know, especially in non-binary and genderqueer, it's like, okay, it's a very thin, it's very, you know, their hair is this one cut, it, their skin is this color. And, you know, this was saying, you know, what about what about the the bombshell blonde? Like, what about mm-hmm. you know having that gender experience and being so quickly someone who's you know cut up and consumed? Really, you know, that's how I think about the girl's experience before Loma even gets there. You know, yeah, and I and I and I sort of feel like you know writing shades sort of you know helped me sort of figure out you know sort of where I've been this whole time you know like um and um you know and sort of was a part of my process of you know adding just felt right to add a they to you know to my to my pronouns because it's something that I'd already been doing kind of my whole life but had never really sort of thought about it and um you so it felt really natural actually in retrospect you know, being like, oh yeah, of course I wrote shade. Of course that felt very normal for me to write, you know, like I didn't even think about that because, you know, I grew up in a different time where we weren't having these kinds of conversations, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and so, you know, yeah, it was good for me too, you know, like, (laughs) you know, I, I, so many people, I think so many creatives really do explore gender or sexuality without even meaning to, or, you know, like I think about, um, Bishock Soames' beautiful memoir, Spellbound, which Bishock wrote as if Bishock were a cis woman. And she explored through that. Actually, she said to us in, in her interview, she said that she sort of worked her way back to like, oh, my God, that's why I wrote myself as a cis woman, because I'm trans. <laughs> right. And it was just it was such a beautiful moment. But, you know, I hear that for so many people. And I think, you know, it's part of the creative process, I think, of to, to dig into your own questions your own wounds in different ways and then suddenly it's like oh dang that makes perfect sense <laughs> absolutely I mean think about it too I mean what did I write after that I wrote Soupy Leaves Home which I was is, gonna you know, say it if we're talking about gender <laughs> exactly. we gotta talk about Soupy Leaves you know? Home and I mean uh, you know for you know Soupy um Leaves Home you know it's about a girl who dresses up as a boy um and rides the rails as a hobo in depression era America and you know I, you know I think that you know, for Soupy, it's not so much that she wants to be a boy. It's that she can't see the, the, she can't see a model for the kind of woman that she wants to be in the world. And the only way that she can sort of, you know, sort of, um, find her path to becoming that person is by, you know, becoming a boy for, for, for this journey, you know, and, um, and I think that if I think that if Soupy had the choice to use they in their in their pronouns, that you know that they would, you know. Um, but um, but yeah, in 1932, you know, it was you know like a, a a woman who bobbed their hair was considered, you know, it was just you know, just like the most scandalous thing in the world, you know. And she's wearing pants. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and I think that um, I think that for Soupy, it's a way for her to become the kind of woman that she wanted to be. And, you know, when I think about it now, it's like, oh yeah, you know, a lot of times when I was growing up, I was like, well, I don't really see any, I don't see anybody (laughs) who's, I mean, I, I can't like all these things that I'm supposed to like as a girl, I'm not liking. And so like they, they don't, they don't, 
ring true to me. You know, all these other things ring true to me, but I couldn't really see it. You know, I mean, I grew up in the seventies, so it was just different, you know? Um, so yeah, so I think that that's what Soupy, Soupy is trying to do, you know, by the end, trying to go to college, trying to, you know, sort of make her own way in the world and figure, figure that out on, on their own terms. Yeah, I just had to think for a minute and be like, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I have these moments sometimes where I'm like, uh-huh, totally. I was thinking, too, that something that I appreciate a lot of in your work is, is that there is this way of looking at gender as being this kind of ongoing exploration, right? Because I think about myself sometimes and I go, well, I identify as a cis woman, basically, like a cis lesbian, basically. But then it's like there's times when I'm more feminine and times when I'm less Mm -hmm. feminine. And I think that that's something maybe that people experience like kind of just through their lives, right? Is like there's times I'm more this or that or nothing (laughs) or everything, you know, like there's it just kind of is this ongoing thing where you can learn a lot about yourself just by asking basic questions. And I think that I've seen that as just kind of being an ongoing theme in your work. Yeah. And I, I thank you. <laughs> thank you. And yeah, I mean, I, I do think, um, that, you know, I think that that I was probably marked with it from my earliest childhood. I mean, you know, my best friend growing up in high school is, was Chaz Bono, you know, and, um, and so, what? yeah. And so, you know, when that's your, when that's your best, you know, ride or die sleepover friend for your entire, you know, high school experience that, you know, that it, it makes, especially in, you know, in the early eighties, I mean, that, you know, that sort of makes you much more open to thinking about a lot of different things. Um, you know, uh, you know, at that time at a younger age when people weren't really thinking about that in the terms that we're thinking about it in now. So I think for me, it's always been sort of like, you know, yeah, you know, meet yourself every day and figure out where you are. You know, I, I refer to myself as a girl and as a lady, I do not like really using the word woman. You know, I'm like, "Mm, yeah, that's not really what it is, you know, like, but a lady, okay, that's more that I don't know, it's just different, you know, and maybe that'll change when I'm 80. I don't know, maybe it won't. I've been thinking too about how there is kind of this interesting project, like through comics history, essentially, if you kind of look at whenever they first started introducing characters that now were like, oh, that character, you're, it's like you're trying to do like a gender queer character, but like it still is very binary. Mm-hmm. You know, you would have characters that were like man, sometimes woman, sometimes like I, they did that with a uh, Sasquatch in the Alpha Flight series. And they did that with Cloud and the New Defenders and things like that. I still think those comics are so interesting because it's kind of leading in and it kind of has this uh, like it it leads into like something like Shade the Changing mm-hmm. Man, where it's like, are there missteps? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But there's like so much to kind of gain from it as you watch this projection through comics, because now obviously we have people who are, you know, telling their own stories mm-hmm. and that's always going to be the most valuable thing in the world. But I also kind of appreciate those sort of starts and stops that we had along the way. Yeah. And I think that's a part of the process of how, um, you know, not just in comics, but just, you know, in, in other things too, you know, like David Bowie or Annie Lennox, who right, were like right. my idols when I was growing up, you know, I mean, you know, that, that was, that was like, oh, there's that. Okay, good. I see a path, you know, like there's, there's like a, there's, you know, there's something there, but it's like everything builds upon everything until now you have this, 
you know, this language for this, you know, this, this place for this space where, you know, we can sort of figure it out. Great. (laughs) Yeah. I really like a lot of imperfect representation. I guess all the representation is imperfect to some degree. Um, Because people are imperfect. Oh, that's it. That's the end of the pod. Good night. (laughs) Good night. Um, (laughs) You now have feelings. Um, Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think I like a lot of that stuff, even though it's messy. Maybe it's not as, you know, neat as feels easy to package. But I don't know. I kind of like the messy stuff. Of course, there's very offensive stuff too. And even some of that, I think, is kind of funny. I, I I know that's wrong, but it's true. Not all of it, but there are these moments where I'm like, that's a hilariously messed up thing to say. Because um, yeah, life is funny. Yeah. I don't know. In all I just... respects, honestly, like, <laughs> like there will be ones like Batgirl appearances where they're just like a girl fighting crime, and you're just like, that's actually kind of funny, just because oh, you know, totally. what exactly. we know of girls today <laughs> and how much <laughs> crime fighting they do. Yes, yeah. this is what we know of girls. Um, you know, I've also been thinking a lot about with the uh, Soupy Leaves Home. Like, this is a heavily researched book. I mean, yeah. I'm guessing because yes. you're not from that era. <laughs> I'm like, wait yes. a minute, have I somehow forgot how time works? So, you know, I was really moved by the the real codes that I saw mm-hmm. that you know I've I've learned about in the past from unhoused folks. You know, about the songs they were singing, about the way that they sort of self rule and and mm-hmm. their you know quote unquote hobo court. And all those pieces. And I was just like, this is such a labor of love. And then rendered through this, like, you know, very, quote unquote, masculine world, right? Mm-hmm. But then you've got Soupy, this this person getting by who is, you know, maybe she's genderqueer. Maybe she's non-binary. Maybe she's cis. I don't think it really yeah. matters. She's a person. And she's yeah. she's sort of, you know, living this sort of secret to trying to keep herself safe, frankly. Mm -hmm. And so um, I would love to hear a little bit more about how that research came together. And, you know, what was the moment for you when you were like, oh, my God, I know what it is. This is the story. You know, it's interesting because I think I kind of wrote that story to save myself. I was going through a really, really difficult time. Um, I was not doing well. Um, Something had happened and um, I was unable to see a way forward. And somebody put a you know, one of those things on Facebook and it was a meme and it was like, what would your hobo name be? And I just wrote soupy because I like soup. And, um, and then I was like, what is a hobo? You know, like, like, what are they? And so then I started sort of deep diving and that was something that ended up becoming a lifeline for me. And I, I I think it was at a time where I just sort of didn't want to be you know, I just didn't want to be, I didn't want to not be, but like, I didn't know how to be when I was feeling so thin, like in my soul, um, or invisible or just tiny. Um, and so, uh, I think diving into hobo culture and reading about it and just sort of thinking about, wow, what would it be like to just disappear and ride the rails? (laughs) Just, you know, sort of be outside in the sort of interstices of society. Um, And that was how the story got born, you know, of this girl who's in a terrible home situation. And and the only way that she can sort of live is to put herself aside and become someone new um, and sort of rebuild herself uh, to becoming strong enough to become who she really is. Um, and so I think that, uh, that research was really amazing to do. Um, I, you know, there's a great, um, 
a PBS documentary about uh, children who rode the rails. Um, most all all the girls who rode the rails dressed as boys because it was the safe way to travel. Um, there's you know all these like great silent movies, um, Beggars of Life, and uh, um, all these other movies that um, that talk about hobos. There are there are great um, uh, books. Uh, memoirs and stuff. And so I just sort of did a deep dive in, into that and um, and just found it to be really fascinating. I'm not saying that hobo culture was the best. It certainly had its problems, <laughs> but, um, but it was, you know, it, it was, it was really interesting to see these, the, this culture that um, really tried to sort of help each other and have like a strict code of how you were sort of good to each other. I think all cultures have drawbacks. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, it's like any other culture that way. Yeah, it was it was so real, I feel like. I I just, I felt like I was there with Soupy and Ramshackle. Um, it was really beautiful. It was really like what I, what I think a common theme I've, I've gathered from your work is these, you know, sort of incredible settings, whether that be more science fiction fantasy settings or, you know, this time period or even, you know, even though it is science fiction, uh, or maybe it's fantasy. Ooh, time travel. Ooh, I love that you can be either. Uh, you know, Nikki Fix, like getting those pieces together. There's also these tender moments, these these sort of micro moments where it's like we get into to what it means to be a human and what it means to be human together. And that's what really stood out to me in Soupy Leaves Home. Thank you. And Soupy makes me cry. Like even when I read it, oh, I get yeah. to the end and like I like get to that part where her and Ramshackle are are talking and and she's like would you like me even if i was a girl named pearl and then i'm just like <laughs> yes <laughs> i'm like i wrote so it emotional. i know it's coming you know but um yeah <laughs> but it's that good <laughs> and i think i think the same thing with shifting earth you know i mean mm -hmm. i did research for that too you know talking with botanists and um you know uh really thinking about uh the science of it and trying to think about how do we how do we figure out how to care for the planet that we're on? And how do we figure out how to do actions um, and talk about taking actions um, that are going to, you know, that are going to, you know, be helpful to the whole? And what what might that cost us sometimes? Mm. Yeah, you're so good. You're like, and let me segue to my next book. And I'm like, yes, yes. take us, Cecil, because I love Shifting Earth. I Sarah is also a gardener. I'm a gardener. I'm actually, this year, I'm moving, the plan is to move to a farm to to do permaculture farming. Oh my God, I love it. a version of that. Um, I'm very excited. I'm, I'm a tourist too, so I need plants in my face. I actually have a huge bookshelf of plants next to me at my recording setup. Um, and, you know, I just, the book was so, Shifting Earth is so beautiful and it's beautiful in, in the way that the art is done. Fucking mm, fantastic Flavia, art. Flavia Biondi. Yeah. Flavia, Amazing. you killed it. Yeah. Killed it. So beautiful. It's beautiful in the way that it, I, I think there's something so powerful about this narrative of this person who is like, having kids, what are you? Are you off the rails? Like, I'm not going to have kids. Look at the society. Look at the planet. Everything's dying. Why would I have children? And this person's like, oh, hope. And then, you know, she gets to travel to another earth and understand what hope is and and have children. I can't. I can't. Cecil, it's too good. It's too beautiful. I'm emotional. 
Oh, and then did you get all like the, you know, and then the twins and the two moons and the, and like the mythology the and the, and the yeah. oh my God. And one twin is with the mom and one twin's with the dad. Uh, and, the, you know, they're like, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't. It was too beautiful. I loved it so, so much. And so, yes, I'd love to know more about that research part. You talked a little bit about, you give us a quick overview, but like, what was, what were your conversations with the different experts like when you talk to botanists or you talk to to folks about, I'm guessing astrophysics. Is that, is that yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, t- I mean, you know, I, I talked to, uh, so I talked to a botanist, uh, Dr. Lisa Deliso, who, you know, does um, sort of that kind of um, trying to find sort of wild strains of things. I think, um, I think she's just worked, work, found or worked with a cherry, a cherry tree thing. Um, and so she really helped me make sure that the, the botany stuff sounded real, you know, and, um, because I was like, maybe it could work like this. And she's like, well, that's not exactly how plants work, but you know, here, here's, here's the language for you, you know? Um, and I love talking to scientists about that because I think that, um, you know, the, the point of, you know, thinking, uh, you know, about how, uh, flora and fauna might be different on a, um, planet that has two moons on an earth that has two moons and lots of water, how they would have to be resilient against storms like the ones that I'm seeing right now in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, and that resilience that we need to bring back to our own plants and um, that there are botanists who are looking for, you know, that wild stock of corn or wild stock of something that's like on the side of a road in a mountain somewhere um, that's just slightly genetically different that is thrived and that we could use to help us, you know, um, as we face food insecurity, um, you know, uh, moving forward. And part of the idea for the book is to like, how do we have conversations about hopeful futures, about about futures where we we can see that we can take action and do something because everything feels a little dire. And I, for one, sometimes, I mean, I love a good post-apocalyptic story, <laughs> but yeah. I get a little bit, I get a bit overwhelmed. And um, I think that sci-fi is so great in its ability to, um, you know, help us to imagine futures. And so um, I wanted to try to put something out there that was sort of helpful with trying to imagine positive actions. Um, mm-hmm. And then astrophysics-wise, I spoke to my friend, Dr. Clifford Johnson, who's an astrophysicist. And um, I was really interested in this uh, event that happened in the 1800s called the Carrington event, which was mm-hmm. where the sunset spots were so big that this guy Carrington could see, you could see them with the naked eye. Um, and uh, there was a, a huge solar flare and telegraph wires burst into flames. And if it, if something that big happened now, um, you know, it would, we would have, we would feel very, very dire circumstances in our major electronic technological age. Um, and so it was just kind of playing around with those ideas. And, um, and, you know, I was like, how can I make a wormhole? And he was like, well, <laughs> uh, nothing that you're saying could make one, but why don't we could fudge here and you could, you know, <laughs> maybe, not really, but maybe, you know. And, um, and he's That's always great. what it's like talking to a scientist as of like a course. speculative fiction creator is you're like, I, I mean, I know it won't work, work, yeah. but like, could we stretch our imaginations in that direction? And they're like, I, what is that sentence? They mean? all read fiction too, though, <laughs> exactly. right? Like, that's it. Is like they read the same sci-fi we did. That's always what I feel like whenever I talk to scientists. Exactly. Is I'm just like, you read the same thing and you had a completely different thought pattern <laughs> yeah. on it because my thought pattern was like, woo, I'm off in 
fantasy land <laughs> and your thought pattern was like how is this real right and like that is wild I mean to me I was like how is it emotionally real and you were like how is this science real right. <laughs> I think what's great about talking with scientists is that they get excited you know they get excited yeah. even though they're like yeah that can't happen but if you did something like this then maybe a pos- theoretically maybe you know ask yeah. a, uh, any scientist about how super Superman could fly and they have yeah. an idea, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> even if it's something that doesn't make sense, they're like, in the year 1850, a scientist wrote in his journal that, like, maybe there's particles that are anti-gravitational. And you're just like, did there, did any, nothing backed this up, but <laughs> there was an idea. And so if that were real, like, you know, it's always something like that, yeah. which I love. And also <laughs> it's like when you're talking, especially when you're talking to astrophysicists, it's like at some point when they start talking about like dark matter and gravitational waves and black holes and space time, it's like, it sounds like magic. So it's like, you know, like, okay, you know, like, like, so therefore I can have a little wiggle room. It just means that X is this instead of that. Right. So yeah, it's, it's, I love talking to scientists about it. And I love, I mean, I talked to scientists for pretty much all of my all of my books. I mean, even in writing Batgirl, like um, when I, you know, I mean, I didn't get to use much of it at all. But um, but when, uh, you know, um, in the beginning of my run at Batgirl, she, um, you know, she's fighting, uh, uh, she's fighting, you know, uh, uh, herself, basically, uh, as a as a as an AI, um, as Oracle. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, you know, I talked to a, you know, uh, an expert on AI, like I emailed them and was like, okay, how could an AI, you know, how could a robot gain consciousness? And what would the, what would the, what would the, you know, the steps be for that and and stuff like that. And um, yeah, so I, I just, I love springboarding all of my science fiction. Like I can point to, oh, I, I sprung that out from this piece of science. It's all fake. It's none of it is real. <laughs> but um, but I can tell you exactly what where I where I pulled an idea from. Mm, I love that. Thanks. I love that too. <laughs> I want to talk to you because I mean Batgirl is huge and you know what a what an incredible run. But it's it's also true that you wrote the female furies, yes. as we mentioned earlier. And you know. Batgirl is one of those comics where, like, right now, Batgirls is going, and that comic is amazing. Like, Batgirl has a lot of really great stories, and I think that it's always awesome how each creator brings this whole different energy Mm -hmm. to that character specifically, even if it's, like, you know, it's Cassandra Cain or, you know, Stephanie Brown, whoever it is in that moment. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's, like, Batgirl is almost like a sign of the times, right? Like, when you're reading through the comics, you can really kind of tell where we're at in history when you pick up that comic. But I was also thinking, too, about how Female Furies is this team that very much is all villains, right? Like, I mean, villains who sometimes maybe achieve anti-hero status, but you have this kind of, uh, this realm that so many people like I feel like the new gods is one of those things where people often like it in theory but it's like when there's been so many kind of starts and stops with the new gods Mm -hmm. like you'll have people do like you know the legendary Mr. Miracle run by Tom King Mm -hmm. you know but then it's like 
it'll kind of fall off for a little while. And it's such an interesting thing. Like, I love the female Furies. I think that hands down, they're like one of the scariest teams, totally. right? Like, they're when it comes to supervillain stuff, I'm like, they are terrifying. Yeah. And I loved your take on it because I feel like there was this way of humanizing the characters without making them less scary. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that and how, you know, you were looking at a character like Granny Goodness Mm -hmm. and it's like Granny Goodness is totally a victim of sexism. Like darks, you know, they, they treat her really badly. Like there's a story that is just like absolutely vicious where she truly suffers, but her response is to be so awful <laughs> to like all other women yeah. and, you know, you know, basically everybody, honestly. But I loved that kind of exploration into that character because I felt like it was one of those things where I was like, oh, I sympathize with her and she's even scarier than she was before, which I think is very rare. Like you see people humanizing these characters like villains and stuff, but very rare do they stay exactly as terrifying as they always were. And that was something I just really appreciated that you did with Granny Goodness. So I'd love to hear, you know, anything you have to say about that. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, I really felt, me and Adriana Mello, we really felt like uh, that that run on Female Furies was a calling in a way and that it was important. You know, I mean, this was right, I mean, pitched it right around, you know, right at the beginning of the Me Too movement. And, you know, the the sort of idea was, you know, what would a Me Too movement look like on a hell planet? <laughs> you know, like, what would that look like? <laughs> oh, um, that's what it would look like, right? Exactly. Like, what does that feminist awakening look like? Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, with Granny, it kind of touches on that idea of like, um, I don't know, you know, sometimes when I talk to much, much older women, 85-year-old women, 90-year-old women, And they talk about, you know, how they dealt with men and pats on the butt and all of that stuff in their time, which is, you know, like they have a different sort of a different way that they had to survive and the way that they survived. Definitely. Oh, definitely. And so that conversation with then, you know, sort of, um, you know, I, I look at Granny Goodness and then she makes this elite fighting force of women because she was always alone, but then she's kind of jealous of them too, because Mm. like they're dip, they, they don't know how lucky they have it, but they don't have it lucky at all. You know, like it's hell. And, um, I took, uh, uh, there's an issue of, um, of Kirby's, uh, Mr. Miracle. Uh, I think it's issue number eight. Uh, it's, it's called, it's with Himon. And, um, and in it, there is this story of O'Reilly. And this is, um, in this, issue is where, um, you know, Scott and, um, Big Barda meet for the first time when Big Barda is trying to pull a really back. This, I'm like, this might be four, (laughs) like issue four, but I'm nodding so enthusiastically with you right now because I'm just like, yes, this issue, this issue. (laughs) So Mr. Miracle number eight by, um, by Jack, by Kirby, I I just basically took that issue and expanded. I was like, well, what happened to her really? Why, why, why did she try to run? Like what, what, what happened? She, she's obviously a, um, you know, a big, um, uh, you know, she was a female fury herself. And then this incident happens to her, um, you know, by inspector Willick, it's all there. And so I just expanded that story. And I was like, 
you know, Kirby was talking about these things, but, you know, of course he was in a different time. And so he, you know, he didn't give that story as much sort of um, space that it needed to be told. And so I really wanted to tell a story that could be pulled directly from Kirby's book and, um, uh, and sort of fit in in that way and sort of put a new lens on it, um, a real feminist lens. And everything that's in there is directly sort of like, you know, taken from what I looked at as like sort of uh, uh, the, it, you know, the story that um, Kirby was saying in between the gutters of, of his own, of his own Mr. Miracle. And Big Barda, right? Such a incredible character. Yeah. Even whenever she first pops up in Kirby's book and people are like, whoa, what will feminism be next <laughs> or something? Because she's like lifting everything, yeah, and, you know, and, just like. And she changes. She like in you know, not only in my story, but in Kirby's story, she changes because yeah. of what happens to Aureli, you know, like yeah. Willick makes her dance to death in Kirby's story and in my story. And that is what her awakening is when she's like, wow, this world is fucked up and everything is fucked up. And, and that's when she, you know, sort of, um, you know, joins Mr. Miracle and Scott Free. That's when she falls in love with him. Like there is no, there is no Big Barda and um and and Mr. Miracle if not for uh you know that incident um that happened with Aureli in Kirby's book. And so that's that's what I that's what I, I to me it just seemed like a very very clear um a clear thing of of uh, of sexism being touched on and so and so I I just I pulled it out but it's a hard book <laughs> I mean it's a hard book it was a hard book to write and yeah. and it's it's a hard book to read I think a lot of people are you know it's not um you know I love Tom King's Mr. Miracle um but it, that but that's a lot cozier I mean I know there's like some harsh sure. things that happen in there but it's a lot you know there's more tongue in cheek and it's sort of it's easier it's an existential crisis yeah, it's you know easier like to instead love, of you know yeah instead of like oh and here this person is getting killed and raped and assaulted and you know yeah like, I mean you know and and being forced to do womanly things like have a bake-off and wear you know and being judged for these stupid things and you know um and, uh, you know, sort of try to uh, live and survive amongst a really bad patriarchy, you know? And that's kind of where the honesty of that story is, though. And I do think that you uh, followed up on Kirby's stuff really well, because as you say, there is no Mr. Miracle in Bardo without that situation. Yeah. That's how Kirby posits exactly. it. Like, he makes it be like... No, not only does Scott have to be the coolest dude, like, I think that Scott is such a good guy. And, like, whenever he meets Barta, he isn't intimidated by her, but he just is like, tell me what you need for me, you know, in this way that I think is great. And then I look at, like, what Barta's trajectory is, and there's a lot of themes in it. There's anti-war themes, definitely. The way that she has to kind of break away from this thing that has defined her life, yeah. I think, is so fascinating. Because how often does that actually happen? You know, you the once the mask is removed, you can't see it back on, exactly. right? Like they can put the mask back on, but you still always know what the other side of that is. And I think that that was something that I just like, I don't know. I loved that series. So I wanted to definitely touch on Thank that you. as well. I would love to talk in depth about like literally everything you've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like we're getting to time yeah, right now, like, but I'm definitely just like. seven more hours? Because I'm... I'd like to go back to Shade Road, you know? <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you. You know, it's really nice to be able to like talk about 
all of my works, uh, so, or, you know, uh, some of them, because there's others too, you know. But, so yeah, many more. But, um, so many more. I got to read all your YA before we have you on again, because <laughs> I have so, I want to know more about that. It's just really nice. And it's nice to sort of see the themes and to see, you know, that it's nice to talk about them all together. And I, I realized like, oh, this is my favorite one. Oh, no, this is my favorite. Like, I love them all so much. Um, same, and, same. And I just feel so happy to have been able to tell those stories. Like, all of them are so important to me in, in, in many, many different ways. So thank you for loving them. Thank you for putting your blood, sweat, and tears into them so we could just kick back and have our minds blown on every fucking page, you know? Yeah. So much fun. Thank you. I mean, that sounds like an end. I don't know. <laughs> well, <laughs> Sarah, does you typically have a, 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 a last question, but I don't know. Do you want to ask it, Sarah? Sure. Yeah, I would love to. Um, I am curious because we have talked about so many things that you have done in the past, but is there anything that you're working on now or that you have coming down the line that you would like to talk about that you can talk about, right? Like that's the big question. Are you allowed to talk about <laughs> any of your upcoming projects? Well, yeah. Um, I will say that, uh, it's been announced. It was announced in, um, publishers, you know, whatever lunch or whatever. So I, I, I think I can speak about it, but, um, I just handed in, uh, the script and I'm waiting on notes, um, for a new graphic novel um, called My First Monster. Um, and it's mm. um, going to be with artist um, Shazlene Khan. And um, it's about a girl who um, uh, falls in love with the most coolest, wonderful, handsomest, most popular guy in school. And she realizes that he's a literal monster and nobody believes her. So um very excited about that book. In, uh, in a horrifying way. But like, uh, you know. Okay, so when that's coming out, you're going to come back, right? Yes. Because I, I, I A, must like it. read it, and B, yeah. must ask you every question I have about it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it was a hard, it's a hard book to write. Um, but, um, but I think that like it kind of, you know, um, like I can see a thread going from like Soupy Leaves Home to Absolutely. Female Furies to My First Monster to uh, this book that I wrote. I don't, I don't know if you've ever read this. You might like this, but it's called The Year of the Beasts and um, it's a hybrid novel. So it's alternating chapters of prose and comics. The comics mm. are with uh, Nate Powell, who obviously is a genius. Yes. And yes. Um, you can read the book. You can read just the prose and you get one story. You can read just the comics and you get one story, but if you read it together, you get the whole story. And I, I, I see this as like a, a real, like, like a, like there's a thread that goes from, from those. Yeah. Wow. Well, Cecil, thank you so much. This has been absolutely delightful. If folks want to find you online, where can they learn more about you? Either website, social, both, whatever you feel like sharing. Um, well, uh, CecilCastellucci.com. Uh, and then at Twitter, if that still exists, by the time <laughs> airs, um, I'm at Miss Cecil. Uh, and on Instagram, I'm at Cecil Seaskull, which is my old punk name. So um, there you go. Perfect. And if you didn't have a pen out, don't worry, listeners. We will include that info in the show notes. Sarah, thank you so much, as always, for being glorious. It is a delight to hear your beautiful voice. I don't know why my voice broke. I'm not actually emotional. Maybe I am emotional. I'm like, <laughs> Sarah, I'm just so glad you exist. That's true. I am. Uh, Cecil, it is so nice to meet you, to, to read your beautiful work and just think about 
what you're doing and then get to be like, okay, am I right? Is this what you're doing? It's such a gift. So thank you for being here with us and, and enjoying this, this time together. It makes me feel very grateful to be alive. Thank you, S.E. and Sarah. Thank you so much for the great conversation. So happy to have been here. Yes. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Monica. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, patrons. Thank you, everybody I'm forgetting. You are all wonderful. Have a great day. You're listening to Bitches on Comics, distributed by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Find more shows like Bitches on Comics by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at at bitchesoncomics and on Instagram at at bitchesoncomics. Our website is brace yourself bitchesoncomics.com if you go there you can listen to any of our episodes and we've got other shit that we put on tabs i don't remember what it is i am in charge of updating the website however so good luck thanks for the heads up i'll go to this website now if you'd like to support the podcast you can do so by rating and reviewing us on itunes spotify or stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts you can also support the podcast by joining us on patreon Head to patreon.com slash queerspec to learn more. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. I'm Monica Estrella and you can find me at www.audreysrevenge.com or on Twitter at Audrey Revenge. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.